The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I couldn't be more delighted to welcome Dr. Brian Wansink. He is the John Dyson Professor of Consumer Behavior at Cornell University, where he directs the famous Cornell Food and Brand Lab. And I just want to say that I met Dr. Wansink many years ago. It was shortly around the time he published Mindless Eating, Why We Eat More Than We Think. And I've been fascinated by his research ever since. He's the author of over 150 academic articles articles and books, including the best-selling Mindless Eating, Why We Eat More We Think. That was published in 2006. But we're going to mostly focus today on his new book, just out and in time for the diet season, called Slim by Design, Mindless Eating Solutions for Everyday Life. I also want to mention that it was Dr. Wansink's research that led us to the introduction of smaller 100-calorie packages the use of taller glasses in bars to prevent overpouring of alcohol, and the use of elaborate names and mouth-watering descriptions in many chain restaurant menus. And from 2007 to 2009, Dr. Wansing was appointed by the White House to direct USDA's Center for Nutrition, Policy, and Promotion, looking over the 2010 dietary guidelines and promoting the Food Guide Pyramid. So, welcome, Dr. Wansink. Oh, welcome, Melinda. That's a good, nice introduction. It's good to talk with you again. Well, you know, we could go on for a half hour with all of the work you've done. It's so fascinating. You've got a Ph.D. in marketing from Stanford. Is that correct? It's in consumer behavior more specifically, which is kind of like applied psychology. But for the last 25 years, I've, I've only directed it toward food. It's been my, my lifelong mission is to figure out what the eating problems people have are and they come up with transforming solutions that end up uh, changing these problems and then solving them. I would imagine that food marketers love working with you because you have uncovered so many secrets. And in Slim by Design, I love this because it really can transform the environments in which we live and generally tend to overeat. And I'll just start out with one that I think most of us can relate to, and that is the office setting, right? I have been the victim of an office where there was a candy dish within sight filled with little chocolate treats. And if I was having a particularly stressful day, I found myself getting up and consuming one, then maybe two, maybe three, knowing full well that I shouldn't be doing that. And you've got some solutions for the office place. So let's just go through some of the places where we live and work and tell me how we can make these correct. Yeah, well, there's small things we can do as individuals in these in these five places where we eat most of our food, make most of our food decisions. And the office place is one, but it's also our home or two or three most frequented restaurants, our favorite grocery store and where our kids go to school. So there's small changes we can make, but there's also a whole bunch of things we can ask them to make to make it easier for us to eat better. And there are win-win changes. We can talk about those at the end of the interview. But if you're in your office and you're sitting at your desk... It's the wrong place to be <laughs> as long as you sit there. No, because one thing we find, let's, let's take a look at the candy dishes, for instance. 
we did this really neat study with a bunch of administrative assistants where we gave them like bottomless candy dishes for a full month. We either put it on the corner of their desk, six feet away from their desk, or in their desk. And if you put it right in the corner of their desk, the average uh, one of these administrative assistants ate, ate about 225 calories every single day out of the dish. But if you moved it just six feet away, that dropped down to about 100 calories a day. They only ate four Hershey Kisses instead of five, uh, instead of nine, rather. And the thing is, I mean, 150 or 125 calories over the course of the year is going to be about nine pounds you would gain if you kept in your desk. But when we ask these people, hey, you know, why didn't you eat as many candies when we moved it six feet away? Is that like too much work to get there? They said, no, no. She said, six feet gives us pause. Say. Oh, interesting. Am I really that hungry? Yeah. <laughs> and half the time they'd say no. So I mean, these are easy, but these are really easy changes that you can do with something very similar at your home. If you dish out your candy, your cookies, or your ice cream before you go in the living room and watch TV, or you can do it at home even with the serving dishes. If you serve your pasta or your main course from the stove and then take it to where you're seated instead of having that big bowl of pasta like four inches from your uh, hand while you're sitting down eating. Yeah, it's really amazing. And I remember hearing you speak. I believe you spoke at the University of Missouri. I've also heard you speak at other conferences. And it's really interesting that even when we know that we should be doing certain behaviors rather than others, that we all fall victim to these mindless eating patterns. Yeah, you know what's interesting? Is I, I think we've probably done, I would say in the last 25 years, probably about 1,200 studies on people in different contexts and things. And somebody asked me a really interesting question a while back. They said, what is the most interesting thing you've ever discovered? And I, I had to think a while, but I thought, you know, the most interesting thing I've discovered is that people, regardless of whether you show them the, a videotape of what they just did, regardless of whether you show them the statistics of what they just did, they deny being influenced by something as silly as serving under a larger plate than a smaller plate or mm-hmm. you know, the lighting in the room or what the person is doing next to them. We, we all want to think we're smarter than a bowl. Yeah. We, all, we all want to think that we're smarter than to not be fooled by something as simple as these cues around us. And, and that's why we kind of almost refuse to make any changes. Right. It's a whole lot easier to switch out the size of your plate from a 12-inch plate down to a 9.5-inch plate serve 22% less than it is to look at your big plate and say, now that I know this, I won't serve as much. Right. Well, I have to admit that I have switched over from the, the new larger dinner plates in my home. I rarely use those anymore. And I use the salad plates, which seem to have, you know, they've sort of morphed into the dinner plates of the 1950s. So Let's move to the kitchen and talk about how some of the serving sizes of our plates have changed and what we can do. You've got another wonderful discussion in here about what color your kitchen should be. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I know that's important. That is a, that's a battle zone. You know, I, I actually hate to bring that up because all of a sudden that's not something that one person decides. That's something that a bunch of people decide. It ends up being a, almost an act of Congress in some ways to change the kitchen color. Right. Well, one thing we found is that Let's look at colors in general. People have often said, gee, how does, how does color influence how much I serve or eat? Well, one way it influences it, it influences based on the color of your plate. And 
it's not the color of your plate per se, but it's the contrast of the color of your plate versus what you're serving on it. So if you're serving like red pasta, pasta with marinara sauce, and you serve it on a red plate, well, you're going to serve yourself about 20% more than if you serve it on a white plate because there isn't the contrast between the pasta and the plate, so you just keep putting more on. Oh, interesting. Well, but converse, if you're serving rice on a white plate, ooh, man, that's a should be a dietary no-no because you're also going to serve about 20% more and, and eat that. But the thing is, I mean, one solution, I guess, would be to have every color plate in the rainbow. Bad idea, I think. But an easier thing is that if you look at most things that we tend to over-serve, they, they tend to be starches. They tend to be the rices, the plain pasta, potatoes, things like that. And since all of those are white, the thing is just have a contrasting color plate, whether it be red or green or black or brown or yellow or whatever, and it will pretty much automatically get you to serve about 18% less. Mm-hmm. You know, as for color in the kitchen, now this is all of Slim by Design. It's all scientifically based. It's all research proven. But there are a couple times where I say, look, the science behind this next thing I'm going to talk about is really weak. So, you know, take it with a grain of sea salt. And that's what you need to say with the color of the kitchen. Now, in general, very agitating or exciting colors like you know, red or bright yellow or uh, even bright white can agitate us to eat faster than we typically would, and we tend to overeat. And it's in one ways, a lot of fast food places have these very bright, you know, kind of cool, happy colors. That's good for having fun and being excited. But it's not good necessarily for our, our diet. Right. And um, one of the things we found is that it appears to be more neutral colors, not tan and beige, but a little bit deeper than that, are a little bit more calming, and that helps. So, I mean, I mean, our kitchen's painted a pumpkin color, which, you know, it was not for everybody, but, you know, it helps. But the best thing you do, I mean, it wouldn't worry about your kitchen color at all. I'd worry first about making sure there isn't a TV set in your kitchen or yeah. making sure it's off when every time you sit down to eat. Yeah. That will have a huger impact than anything related to color ever would. What about lighting in the kitchen? Well, you know, a similar thing about lighting, if it's, <clears throat> it's way too bright, it has the same sort of effect of you know, raising your, they call this your uh, arousal level, your physiological arousal level, meaning it just speeds up your heartbeat, speeds up you know, the imperceptible amount you're, you kind of um, perspire. And that causes you to also eat faster. And so making sure it's not too bright and that the lighting might be indirect or that you dim one of the lights is a cool thing to do. And it also, it also gives a little bit more atmosphere than most of us typically have at dinner time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to let our listeners know that your book is chock full with all of these kinds of tips about how to make the kitchen more relaxing, less stress-induced. I think it's really nice to have an atmosphere where you're eating that's probably also going to benefit our digestion as well as not create this atmosphere where we're going to just hurry up and eat and then want to get out of there. You also, though, talk about the refrigerator, and you get questions from people that say, well, what is the best kind of refrigerator to buy? Tell me about yeah, that. You know, yeah, you know, this is, and again, the science here isn't very tight, okay? When you ask me about all these things that we have, we have really weak studies on, well, We'll start talking about those. We have really great results on in a few minutes. I okay. Hope, I hope. All right. <laughs> well, so the thing, the thing about refrigerators is that when you when you open your refrigerator, the first thing you see, your 
three times more likely to take and eat than the fifth thing you see. It's right there in front of your face, whatever. But usually the first thing we see, I mean, when I open my refrigerator, sometimes like the, the chocolate cake that was left over from one of my kids' birthday parties or something, I'm like, ooh, yeah. yeah. An easy thing to do is just to sort of move, rearrange your refrigerator so that, first of all, you, you take healthier things that you like, put it up, up front and center. But then take the other sort of stuff that isn't quite so healthy. And First of all, wrap it in a little aluminum foil. Put it in a opaque container because... If it's opaque or you can't see it, you don't even really bother to open it. And it's the same principle that leads to believe in uh, this, this correlational study we have that we did up in Syracuse, New York, that uh, tried to look at what sort of refrigerator is associated with with the skinniest people. And let's say there's three kinds of refrigerators. There's freezer on top. There's second time freezer on bottom. And the other one is a side-by-side. Well, one of the things that we seem to find is that people who, if you have a side-by-side, you you know, you open both doors and you have, like, the indulgent goodies staring right at you, particularly in the freezer. And the same thing with the freezer on top. Most of the things in the front of the freezer, my home, are not, <laughs> are not, are not the things, you know, I want to be, uh, you know, taking to, you know, vegan potluck night, you know? Right. And so what, one of the things that we think is that maybe um, it's correlated with BMI and uh, principally it, it makes perfect sense is the freezer and the bottom sort of uh, refrigerators um, you know, seem to put the most tempting things out of you and you know, leave you a chance to eat some of the fresher, neater stuff that's uh, most convenient and eye level. In fact, you know, I, I remember in, the, in, in my book, some of my design, I said, you know, there's a there's a scorecard for your home where you can tell whether your home is making you skinny, slim by design, or fat by design. It's a hundred point scorecard. You just fill things out, and the number of yeses you get, or the number of points you get. And you know, nobody in the world will ever get a hundred, okay? Because it's just too aspirational. But like you know, like uh, I get an eighty-three, and I, I rock in slim by design. That I don't think I could ever get higher than eighty-three because I'll, I'll probably I'd have to buy a new refrigerator, I'd have to uh, move my microwave, I'd have to do a bunch of things that just aren't worth a household debate to make it happen. So about two weeks ago, a refrigerator broke, so it was time to get a new refrigerator, so, yep, got a freezer on the bottom one, and now I'm up to 84. Oh, that's great. Well, I love the checklist that you have in this book, and we should let our listeners know that what they do is they provide us a way to go through simple steps that make a huge difference. Now, I just need to take a break and let our listeners know, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Brian Wansink. He is the author of Slim by Design, Mindless Eating Solutions for Everyday Life. He is a professor at Cornell University and the director of Cornell's famous Food and Brand Lab, where he is the leading expert in eating behavior. All right, you asked me to focus on issues that were very well researched, so I'm going to put the ball okay. in your court and let you pull oh, okay. out from the book oh, you're, you're funny. something well, yeah. That you really want to focus on? Well, I don't know, really want to focus on, but you know, the, the idea about the scorecard, and we tried to call the scorecard not a checklist because it gives you a, a number at the end of doing it. You know, it gives you a number like you know, forty-three. You say, "Whoa, forty-three! I am making my family fat by design, not skinny by design." 
And it, it ends up being much more instructive than just checking things off because yeah. it actually tells you how you're doing relative to the rest of the world. And do people um, like that? They like to have a score more? So what you're telling me is that consumer behavior research shows that scorecards are more effective at behavior change than checklists? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because most of us want to feel we're improving in life. We want to feel we're, I don't know, we're getting funnier, we're getting better looking, or we're getting smarter, or I, whatever. We, we want to think that things are getting better in our life. And the thing about scorecards is, even though you're just checking things and then counting them up, is you can say, well, I got a 43 last week, but this week I got a 45, and I'm going to make a couple more changes, I'll get a 49 next week. And it makes a big segment of the population motivated, and it makes them happy to think that their life's moving forward and not just sort of in a rut. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I personally know where there's a lot of research that you've worked on, and that was certainly your work with schools, but I don't know if you want to go there. Yeah, we can do that in a bit, but I'll give you you a couple funny things about homes since we're talking about homes. Again, in the book, somebody designed a focus on on the five areas in, in our food radius that influence what we eat. I and what we eat, and again, so it's our homes are two or three most frequented restaurants where we shop, where we work and where kids go to school. But in our home, which is the first place to start, because you know, anytime we bring food into the home, if our home's set up in the wrong way, it's just going to cause us to spin out of control anyway. We wanted to do this thing where, and this is, this is kind of funny, we <clears throat> wanted to figure out what it is about people's homes or their kitchens that differentiate heavy people from skinny people. Is there something that skinny people do in their homes or is there some way their homes are laid out? So what we did is we went up to about 230 families up in Syracuse, New York and went in we took photos of everything. We we weighed the family members, took their heights, all this sort of stuff, uh, measured things. And one of the things we initially thought is like, oh, you know, bigger kitchens lead to bigger people. No! No relationship. Hmm. The thing is, the bigger your kitchen is, oftentimes, the more money you make. And the more money you make, the more you, know, you can uh, afford uh, that personal trainer or that uh, exercise bike or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the thing we found that was astonishing is the biggest predictor as to whether you're going to be heavy or not, just by looking at a photograph of your kitchen right at this very moment, would be what I see on your counter. So we found, for instance, that if anywhere on the counter there was a cookie, whether it be a cookie or a bag of cookies, that person was likely to weigh nine pounds more than the neighbor that didn't have a visible cookie. (laughs) If there was a potato chip or a bag of potato chips, that person would weigh about 10 pounds more than a neighbor that didn't have a cookie or a bag of potato chips. But here's where things get really crazy. We found if there was a box of cereal, and it could be Granola could be Count Chocula. It doesn't matter. If there's a box of cereal anywhere on the counter, the woman in that home weighed 21 pounds more than a neighbor who didn't have any cereal sitting out. Can you explain that? It's crazy. Well, you know, because the thing is, you you look at cookies and potato chips, and you're like, yeah, well, that makes sense. You look at cereal, and kind of go, that makes no sense. Granola? That's, That's pretty healthy. And that's why it has this impact on us. As we walk by it, 15 times a day, if we're in, in working at home, we can go, oh, look at that. Nice, healthy granola. I'll take another handful. Mm. You know, eventually it really adds up. I mean, the good news is that we also found 
if you have a fruit bowl sitting out in your counter, or even just one piece of fruit, I mean, it could be a, actually, a, in this case, it could be even a brown banana. The typical person with any fruit visible in their kitchen weighed eight pounds less than the neighbor next door. Now, we've got a saying in my, my Cornell Food and Brand Lab. I like, I like that you call it a famed Cornell Food and Brand Lab. <laughs> it has you. a great <laughs> reputation, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've got a saying among my group that if you want to be skinny, you do what skinny people do. And so for this last study I talked about, we don't know about the causality. Again, you know, if you want to be skinny, at least set up things in your favor so they're working for you and not against you. Right. And that's what this book is all about. It's really terrific. I do want to talk about schools, though, because you have schools as a section in this book. And really, just by redesigning and changing the traffic flow and changing where certain foods were located, you were able to make a tremendous impact in the well-being of these kids. It's really it's amazing because what we found is that simply by... I'll give you kind of a one version of this, and um, simply by rearranging all of the lunch rooms so that healthier foods are always at the front of the lunch lines when kids enter, mm-hmm. your kids are really really hungry, and they see that salad. They're like, "Well, I usually don't like salad, but man, I'm really hungry. Yeah, I'll take a little bit of that. Well, fruit. Yeah, I usually don't take any fruit, but yeah, I'm really hungry. I'll take some of it. And by the time they get down to pizza, maybe they take it or maybe they don't. But if you have all these items in the reverse order, they see pizza when they're hungry, they go, that's it. Yeah. In fact, I'm done. Right. I don't want anything else. And simply, we found that when we do this, not with just children, but with adults, the first three foods that people see when they're in a buffet line end up um, comprising almost 60% of the foods they end up taking when it's a small buffet line. So, I mean, first seen is first eaten. And we, you know, again, have a 100-point scorecard that is being used, you know, actually in over 20,000 schools across the United States right now to help nudge kids to eat healthier, to take a cookie or to take an apple instead of a cookie without mandating that they, you know, have to you know, eat their kale mm-hmm. or without taking their, you know, white milk away, but setting, setting the environment up so that kids naturally take white milk instead of chocolate milk because white milk is the first thing in the cooler. At least it's early in the cooler. It's in every cooler. All, all of a sudden, kids are taking white milk, and they, if the ones that are really desperate can take the chocolate milk, but in the meantime, kids aren't um, just ordering Funyuns and uh, Domino's pizza from the side door. They're actually eating healthier school lunches. Yeah, it's amazing just what a little bit of psychology or psychological knowledge can do to improve our eating behaviors. What else did you find when you were putting this book together that was Interesting or an aha moment for you that you want your readers to really take out of this? Yeah, you know, I think two big things. The one is the idea that these scorecards are so powerful because they objectively tell you whether your home is making you fat by design or something by design. But they also tell you exactly what you can do to improve it. And they're low-cost, no-cost changes. It tells you what your favorite restaurant is doing and whether it's making you fat by design or slim by design and what you can do yourself or what you can ask them to do to help you change it. And, and I think those things are great. And it's the imp- I, idea of empowerment. That mm-hmm. Not only can we do stuff, but by golly, if I ask them to do something that's in their best interest, they will help me eat healthier. Right. 
Oh, and then I think the second thing was the idea that I that through, on, on the website, which is slimbydesign.org, and then through the book, I you know I have all these 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 tweets that people can send. These little you know when they fill if you fill a, a little starter scorecard on slimbydesign.org, there's all these tweets. There's all these letters we've written. You can send your workplace, your home, your child's school, or your favorite restaurant that can say, hey, look, there's a lot of things you can do that can make more money for you and make it easier for me to eat better. Here's how to get started. I was going to – I was just going to say, I was going to bring that up. I love that you have how to use social media to empower people to make changes in their environment. And I think that's – you know, because the thing is, you know, we grew up in sort of an era of maybe activism, you know, where people would sign petitions and they did do things like this. They they weren't necessarily very market based. They're they're much more sort of, you know, punitive like and stuff. But now I think we have the opportunity to say, hey, there's a lot of things you can do that are beneficial to you. Arby's, McDonald's, TGI Fridays, you know, my workplace, and here's what they are. And I think back a number of years ago, we were people were activists, but now so many more people are much more become collectivists. That's they're much more willing to forward on a you know you know Coney 2012 video than they are to actually do anything. Mm-hmm. But hey, well, let's just embrace that and then and help find out how we can use that to uh, to make the whole world more slim by design. Well, how many tweets or or how many asks? does it take for the parent company to make a change? You know, that's a really, that's a really great question. I, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I had this really neat experience a while back. I was at, I was at this, this reception uh, down in Mount, Mount Vernon, and I had some bunch of congressional staffers were, were there at the reception, and I said, I asked them, I said, how many, you know, whatever, uh, emails or letters or phone calls or whatever do you need to get to? you need to have before your congressperson does something, you take notice or whatever. And I was, I was astonished that almost all of them said about 10. Hmm. If 10 people say, I think fog rush should be banned, or, or I think there should be a national donut day, I mean, it doesn't matter what they say. If just 10 people said something, it was enough for their representative to take notice. Yeah. I don't know that that's the same number with, um, you know, Burger King, for instance, but I'll, I'll give an example. We, uh, <laughs> there's a local uh, grocery store, and I wanted them to have a candy-free aisle so that, you know, when I keep my kids down, they, you know, I don't end up buying candy. Right. For them and for me. And I, I asked them, I said, hey, you know, what, what do you think about having a candy-free grocery aisle because blah, blah, blah. The guy goes, no, no, yeah, I can't do that because you know there's uh, there's these. I'm gonna give you a hundred reasons why I can't do that. And I go, I understand. I, I spend five thousand dollars a year in groceries, but I and I, I wish you would do it though. But I understand. But then what I did is I asked, I asked everybody in my lab to stop by the same grocery store and ask him the same thing. Okay, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and after the sixth person changed. Wow. So, 
Talk about collectivism. That's a wonderful approach. <laughs> well, Dr. Wansink, you know, our time is up, and I would love to have you back to talk about your other research, mindless eating, and more about the Food and Brand Lab. But for now, we just want to let people know about this terrific new book, Slim by Design, Mindless Eating Solutions for Everyday Life by Dr. Brian Wansink. And you can go to the Food and Brand Lab, but you can also go to slimbydesign.org, and you can learn more about it. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And Dr. Wansink, I want to thank you so much for your fascinating research and for being my guest today. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you again. That sounds great.